That is so easy. But what's hard is, hey, this person made a phone call two weeks ago and then they walked in, stitching that together. If you're not tracking the phone calls, you're just going to think your business is thriving on fresh ups or something. We see that all the time. When I look at a CRM report, where did all of our sales come from? Okay, 10 came from PPC, five came from website general or direct or whatever. And like 85% of them are just walk-ins. People just seem to love walking into our motorcycle dealership (laughs) just on their way home. Like it makes no sense. That's not how people work. So... everybody we got a guest here today is mike shog he is the founder owner of premier online marketing uh one of my personal friends here known you for quite a few years and today we're going to geek out on ppc ppc and we're going to talk to be about, here with you thank you thank you mostly we're going to talk about how it relates to uh, an agency or paid media buying in the power sports dealership and uh yeah thanks for coming on mike appreciate you coming it's good to be here. I love talking power sports marketing. So let's get into it. Let's do it, man. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit how you started in advertising and a little bit of your backstory? Absolutely. Yeah. So I started actually doing a little bit of SEO a long, long time ago. I was doing mission work um, in Mexico and I discovered that if I bought Mac computers that were like in whatever form of refurbishment, smuggled them across the border because you're only allowed to bring three at a time. And I would bring well over that. And you could just sell them for 40% more. And I discovered that if I paid these guys that would do this thing called backlinking, I would get a bunch of traffic and my site would rank really well. Turns out everything we were doing at that time was black hat, but that is what got me my initial taste of, wow, digital marketing, this is where I want to go in my career. And um, when I learned about um, kind of the I guess the conflict of interest that Google has with organic and paid media, as in they make money when you click on a paid ad and they don't when you're in organic, I realized that if I was on the SDO side, I would always be fighting the platform and I didn't want to be on that side. Um, I started out at a company called Reach Local in their automotive division with a very good friend of ours, Sean Rains. He, uh, we met out and about and he offered me a job. Uh, fast forward about a year, I was the number one account manager uh, for auto and com- our revenue size compared to everyone else's was like so substantial that I was actually the number one account manager in the cut uh, in the in the company at Reach Local. So that was really cool. It gave me kind of a really good start with paid media. It gave me a ton of familiarity with things like co-op, um, keyword list updating. It was my job. Uh, this was probably when I was like 21. I would have to update the keyword lists for every OEM that we served. So I just became incredibly familiar with every different permutation of trim and models for cars. Um, and it was really auto for a long time. I, I switched over into multifamily and the uh, a very different industry, but the similarity is its lead generation. As automotive marketers, we have a really weird job where it's, it is a bit of an e-commerce play. You're selling inventory and product online and you want to be 
uh, ranking organically for product online, just like you would if you were selling, say, Gucci loafers or, you know, Tom Ford paraphernalia or, or, or whatever. You're, you're, you're looking to rank inventory online or, or via paid ads, market it, but you're also a local shopping experience. So lead generation is kind of my niche. It's my skill set. But I acknowledge that in auto, it's much more difficult because obviously it's the second highest uh, transaction price point you're going to have in your life outside of your house, typically. And, uh, you know, you've also got people in the automotive industry that you've got to work with, too, which have something of a reputation. So it's, it's a real challenge. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. Um, and it's really easy to make a lot of mistakes. So I guess kind of bringing it full circle around in my career a little later i had the opportunity to build out a few different uh, departments within other companies so i got an opportunity when i was working at dealer track to look at four different uh, companies that they had acquired and basically the mission for me as the project manager on this project was find out what's working the best in terms of dealership outcomes and let us know and we're going to make these 200 customers over here and 75 over here all adopt the same practice because what we're doing is insane where we have four different workflows and one of the agencies didn't have a workflow at all. So I had a really awesome opportunity to evaluate what works, what, what is the advantage of a single keyword uh, ad group structure versus not, or um, what is kind of the right interval uh, that you want to uh, pace your team for, for ad optimizations, um, what are best practices for making sure that you're eliminating waste, making sure that bots aren't eating up all your traffic in India or Russia or whatever. So I, I had an incredible just like baptism of going 10 miles deeper within paid media. Um, fast forward further ahead, I started this company. It was a little accidental. I, uh, had an understanding with my former employer that I was going to be getting equity. They informed me that uh, that was not going to be happening. And uh, some choice words were shared. I uh, became an entrepreneur the next day. It was funny. I was actually putting together the, the timeline of starting the company. And I was like looking at my incorporation paperwork. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that was literally the next day. Um, so I started Premiere. What year was just that? A hat. So that would have been kind of toward the end of 2016, uh, November 14th, actually. Um, about a couple months, by a couple months uh, later, I had, I guess, poached enough of my clients to kind of be able to pay my bills. And shortly after that time is when you and I became acquainted. And uh, you brought on, I think, about 13 of the Ride Now stores, which was absolutely critical to us getting a good enough start um, also hired our first team member, Ruben, who is still with us uh, and would want me to say hello. Um, but yeah, it, it was really exciting because this was the introduction to power sports that was very different than auto. For anyone listening that wants, is like curious, like what's the difference between a Honda marketing campaign or a power sports dealership that carries 13 different lines of product? it's a lot. It's a lot. Like with Honda, you've only got eight cars that you're trying to move. With a power sports dealership, you typically are trying to move so many different types of SKUs. There is a ton of search volume at all of those different types of SKUs. Let's go with, um, I don't know, 
let's pick Suzuki, for instance, or um, Polaris, right? You have multiple different types of Polaris razors. And the, the problem with Polaris in particular is that you have a lot of people that are just into it, right? No one's into a Civic the way someone's into a razor, right? Yeah. So you've got to drive traffic for all of these different brands, for all these different models, and not drive traffic for people that aren't going to buy. So it's actually way, way hard. It's one of the most difficult forms of marketing. It's also a luxury item. It's not something people need, like a Honda Civic. Again, that was my first new car that I bought, so I keep referencing it. But um, so it, it definitely makes it very challenging. It is an e-commerce business where the transactions are all local. So uh, anything, you know, anything e-commerce is relevant and local marketing is relevant too. And those are two entirely different things. And it's not typical that you'll find uh, an agency or someone that specializes in both. You'll find really good e-com agencies, but unfortunately, because you're not capturing those transactions online and they're local, you can have some real gaps and it can be easy to overlook things and, and waste a lot. But I, I talked a lot, so <laughs> rein well, me in here. Let's let's break that down just a little bit, right? Because we, we we said a lot there, and we're going to have to pause a couple times and talk about the uh, acronyms, right? You said things like SEO, right? Search engine optimization, uh, PPC, pay per click, right? There's co-op, co that's a co-op program, right? So every now and then we'll we'll stop and talk about these different acronyms just to kind of you know help educate the layman that might be catching this, this, uh, this podcast here, right. For, as I, as I, uh, say, uh, in humor, right. For all 10 people that are listening in their mother's basement, right. They're, they're wondering what SEO means. So we'll talk on that as we go on, but, uh, okay. So now fast forward, you're, you know, you, you and I had met because, uh, my, uh, my business right now, power sports as, as a director of marketing, we were looking at a competitive edge against all the other, uh, direct marketing areas that we were in, right? We're in some competitive ones, uh, Southern California, Phoenix, yeah. Tucson, Dallas, we're all over Florida, right? And all Sunbelt stuff where we have some yeah. heavy hitters that spend a lot of money. And so rather than going with a, uh, a, a generalized agency that was kind of a done for you agency where they did also your print letters and they did your email campaigns, we were more or less looking for a partner that would specialize in just the, the Google paid ads arena, right? We were looking to get uh, our search figured out and then to branch into some new and cutting edge areas. And, and this is kind of the, the theme of what I wanted to talk about with you today, Mike, was you know most dealerships rely on mainly classified ad sites, such as like a, a Cycle Trader or Rolic to generate their leads. Um, and those are great great platforms, great partners to do something with, but a lot of dealers only use those. So let's talk about their, their major drawbacks, right? Uh, oftentimes yeah. these programs or these partners, they're expensive. Uh, they're difficult to target, right? So you mentioned yeah. local uh, earlier, which we'll get a, a little bit deeper into. Um, their ads are often ignored because they're, they, they're cycle trader branded, they're, they're Rollick branded, they're whatever platform you're on branded. Yeah. And you literally have competition from other dealers next to your listings, right? So yeah. why, why? let's go into this. Why would paid ads from an agency like yourself that specializes in Google, why would that need to be a part of a dealer's marketing mix? Well, I think um, 
it's it's really remarkable. I, I have to give like Cycle Trader some credit because it does an okay job for its niche. Uh, back in the day, we had Auto Trader. I don't know anyone that uses Auto Trader now, for instance. I'm sure there are a lot of people that use it, but most people just go on Google and find the local dealership that they want to go and transact with. The issue that you're going to have with any of these types of platforms is it's not one-to-one. -one. Why would I want to pay a company to list their, you know, my competitor's unit right next to mine? That doesn't make sense. The other issue that you're going to have is attribution. I spend X and I get X. A lot of these uh, different companies will tell you that you're getting a lot more than you're actually getting. Apartments.com and Zillow are great examples on the multifamily side where the, they, if if you see an ad and convert five years from today, they'll be like, that's us. That's all us. And it's it's total bullshit. You know that they transacted with you because they came through your Google business profile after clicking on three ads, reading a blog, so on and so forth. So in if a, a dealership wants to maximize their exposure, then there is no better strategy for you than paid search. If you have a list of inventory, that's your list of keywords, and you have the opportunity to drive eyeballs for just what you have to, to, uh, to sell. What, um, what you don't want to do is leverage paid search to be overly generalistic. You know, for instance, motorcycle dealer. Why would I go with something like motorcycle dealer when I can say I'm looking for a Harley Davidson lowrider or something? You have the ability to be super surgical, super precise. And what's just as important about your ability to target your audience effectively and your ability to hone in on that is also the ability to exclude the audiences where you will not uh, be selling to. Um, kind of in, in one of the other verticals that we're in, we have a lot of active senior communities, 55 plus. You know, sure, they are living in an apartment home, but they're not, but it's not. You know, it's different. Um, people who ride Harley Davidsons are very different than people who. Uh, do, you know, dune riding uh, on Can-Ams in Glamis or whatever. So within power sports, you really need to hyper-focus on your niche. And uh, you also need to make sure that you're excluding everything else. Your hat is the best. Honda was the most irritating uh, brand for us to work with on the power sports side, because guess where all the search volume is? It's with cars. Yeah. So if I'm launching a campaign with anything that sells anything Honda power sports related, I can't just bid on, you know, uh, Honda, you know, Honda AFT or whatever. It would have to be like, and I also exclude any Civic, Accord, whatever traffic, because Google will try to waste your money if they can. It's a great platform, but there are definitely some things that you need to be aware of. Um, but ultimately, if you have a product that you want to drive traffic for and get a lot of attention on right away, paid search is the fastest, most precise way to do it for sure. Well, let's talk about that, right? So you 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 mentioned uh, a vague term when we talk about keywords in search, right? And we'll cover the different types of Google ads here in a moment, but just sticking on the vein of search, you open up Google as a as a user, and let's say you're now in funnel, right? You've maybe had some type of influence come at you, a TV commercial, you saw an ad in a newspaper, if that's even still a thing, or your buddies got a new bike. Okay, well, it's time for me to go and funnel as a user. The first thing that I'm going to pull up is Google, and I'm going to do a little research on the types of motorcycles or the brands that I know and like. So 
rather than going vague, like you mentioned earlier, motorcycle for sale, used Harley for sale, even, you know, that's a tad bit more specific, but still very generalized. Uh Why is that not a good idea versus a super specific ad or search uh, keyword that is, you know, 2020 Polaris Razor XP Turbo, you know, in white, right? Tell me the two differences between those. So what I want to do as much as possible is just um, go after the business that is ready to convert. I do not want to invest in their education cycle unless I'm Revzilla or I'm right now corporate or Polaris corporate. It's their job to talk about why their vehicle is better than someone else's. Most local businesses' websites are just not equipped for that. And they are websites that are focused on e-commerce and local transactions. They're not, you're not going to typically outrank an article for say, let's say Can-Am Maverick versus Polaris Razor. Uh, Some Edmonds or some other publication is going to rank for that and you will see it and you know your friends will see it but you're not going to it's not going to have the outcome that you want so the reason why you want to go hyper specific is because there's a ton of people that have already gone through that journey so you don't need to waste your time in going at the top of the funnel you can just invest at the bottom of the funnel and the the keywords that indicate people are closer to the bottom of that transaction journey is when they start using inventory terms. Um, like I'm in Austin, Texas, ha- Harley Davidson, Austin. That's still general, but it's it's what and where. So that's way more specific than saying Harley uh, motorcycle or dealership or, or motorcycle dealership, Austin. It's saying, I want this brand and I want it in this place. But what would be even better is if someone says, I want a 2022 or 2024 Harley Davidson low rider or CVO or, you know, 48 or whatever they have right now. But basically, the more precise someone gets with their search, that's where you can hook them. You can write an ad that's super relevant that says, hey, we have uh, 15 Harley Davidson 48s in stock, four different uh, you know, colors, come in and test drivers today. Make a call right now. You're, you can take them at their point of inquiry and push them into a conversion cycle. Now, if we were investing very top of funnel, Harley, Texas, Harley dealership near me, uh, cruisers, even more broadly, that's great. I mean, I might be able to bring that user in for transaction, but there's going to be so many different touch points. And what I want to do is I, I would rather invest closer to the bottom of the cycle so I don't have to keep paying to bring this user back to the website. I don't want to pay for their education with Power Sports. I just want to be there for them when they are ready to buy the motorcycle in in my market. So you're 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 hunting in the process of the super high intent, right? This person that you're looking for in the funnel has already done their research. They've already done their location. They've maybe narrowed it down to a couple makes or models. You're looking for that customer that's ready to make the next step, essentially convert to a type of hand raiser, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's in search, right? And search is definitely where a lion's share of your efforts go in terms of being a steward for that particular business's ad spend into Google is in search. What are some other areas? We've got uh, video, we've got display, 
we've got in-app. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, those other three types of Google ads that are available? For power sports, I only like search call only, which are just, that's a different form of search where it's again, aligned with how a dealership transacts. They're calling you right now. Are you looking for a new low rider? Yes. Call us now. That's what the, that's what they're going to do when they go to the website or whatever call only circumvents it. I really like that format after search. It's definitely video specifically for power sports, power sports. Again, you know, if you're selling a Honda motorcycle, you're going to get a lot more views on that than someone selling a Honda car, you know, for obvious reasons, it's really visual, it's sexy, it's appealing. People that are interested in motorcycles are going to be happy watching an action scene. You know, it's, it's very engaging. So with that said, I would say that video is probably the most important um, and least utilized avenues for most power sports dealers. And the reason why is because um, I think it's like video production is just really hard. It's getting easier with some of the tools these days, but ultimately the, the second most important category for any dealership outside of search is going to be video for two reasons. One, I can target them just like I target a searcher. So back to our Harley Davidson lowrider of Austin. Um, this is kind of an interesting stat. Um, out of any given search engine results page, when you pull up uh, the ads and the organic listings, only 15% of them are going to click on ads and the other 85% for that ad auction or for that search engine results page uh, are gonna be organic. And typically it's like, damn it, they didn't click on my ad, I lost them, I have no idea where they went. Uh, the SEO team is gonna take credit for that lead if they get it down the line. But now you can actually leverage something called custom intent where I can take all the keyword lists that uh, have a good history of performance. You always wanna, you don't wanna go like super top of funnel. You wanna go with your keywords that we consider to be your alphas. They're the keywords that have uh, leads associated with them when you look in your historical data. And you can, so when that person does that search, they don't click on your ad, but they just search that. They, that is a in-market customer. So rather than let them go, we can serve them a video to bring them to the website. Uh, the other thing that I really like is it does cost a good amount of money to bring people to the site. So that's why our remarketing really comes into play. Um, I am not a huge fan of display uh, just for the reason that it's like, it is cool. It's it's more visual than a search ad, but it, uh, it it's just a very easy way to waste money. And it's not as engaging as a video. And given the fact that YouTube is, the second largest search engine uh, right now, you know, hit people on YouTube. You know, what, if there if someone's going to go online and watch, you know, some political video or uh, a cat video or whatever, you have you can reintroduce yourself very inexpensively. Um, search CPCs tends to be in like a three dollar and fifty cent range. YouTube is like one, so you can get a lot more wow. volume, a lot more volume. And you, if you look at, if you just do a Google search for anything right now. And you think about this one question, what is the impression quality of this search ad on this page that I'm looking for, for Harley Davidson in Austin? It's text. It, it's getting me to go to the website where I'm going to actually have an impression of your product. The video, it's all just right there. So it's it, you get your call to action, ideally, if the video is done right. You convey the, the value of the product of it in action. Um, and 
you, you don't have to do anything else. I know if I'm looking at a text ad for a Harley Davidson 48 or a video, I'm gonna actually understand what the product is. I'm gonna be able to kind of put myself on that bike um, in a way that I won't do it through a search ad. So that's where YouTube definitely comes in second for me. Lastly, I would say like banner remarketing only and don't waste your time with display. Display or the Google display network, we call the, the Google dumpster fire network because <laughs> there's so much bot traffic. A lot of these big content sites will literally game their own metrics and these bots are really clever they can click on things and fill out forms and you'll you'll send a campaign report to someone and you'll be like hey this display campaign got you 100 leads and then they'll come back and they'll be like yeah but they're all junk i've only ever had that happen with display i haven't had that happen as much with remarketing so when i make my recommendations for search call only video banner remarketing it's based on what is gonna have the best cost per conversion and the least amount of waste. So those are kind of the, the strategies that I think are priority for a dealership. That's awesome. Let, let's keep going with the video a little bit, right? I am seeing a lot more dealers these days participate in more of their own video production. Some of the quality is great. Some of the quality is half-assed, we'll call it, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's not terrible, but they're putting content out there. What what types of videos in terms of, um, you know, content should they be producing? How long should these videos be? And when they finally deliver them to an agency like yours, uh, where is the best place to put them? Do you make them skippable? Do you put them at the beginning and the mid video? Tell us a little bit about that. I'm, I'm a big fan of um, non-skippable um, for, I mean, I, 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 if, if I'm spending money on YouTube, I want to make sure that people see the ad. I'll be, the performance of YouTube will be evaluated based on the amount of the video that's watched. Um, and, you know, anyway, so, so that's kind of my preference. So, so non-skippable. Non so if I want to learn how to make uh, enchiladas and I look up YouTube video tutorial on how to do that. I've got to, as a user, sit through your full 30 seconds of video without the skip button option there before I get to my recipe. Correct. And okay. if you want to go with the skippable, then you want to shorten that video to like seconds um, because I believe that becomes available after about 10 seconds. So if you can convey the vast majority of your message, even though it's like a teaser, uh, for skippable, you want to go with a shorter video. It's very... You, you can actually pack quite a bit into a short 10 to 15 second video, but obviously if you have users that are watching 30 second videos, that is a more valuable impression than a 10 second one. Got it. Okay. So 10 to seconds, uh, 10 to 15 seconds, uh, if you can make them non-skippable. Okay. Seems pretty good. Definitely kind of open card and card for sure with your call to action and kind of what you want people to do. Um, for that's for ads. So for ads, definitely shorter format, punchy, really direct. Um, if it's uh, content for remarketing, make it specific to the products that you carry the most of. So for instance, um, if I'm a Harley dealer, I'm probably gonna have a ton of Sportsters or 48s. Um, then I want to make a specific video just for that. I don't want to just say, hey, I'm a Harley dealer and I have motorcycle stuff. It's, hey, for this person that, again, just searched for Harley-Davidson 48, didn't go to my website, and now I'm targeting them with custom intent ad, 
I don't want to hit them with a general dealership ad. I want to hit them with what they're looking for. So that's that's another really important one is having content diversity so you can target people with the products that they're really interested in. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Moto Hunt Premium. Moto Hunt Premium empowers power sports dealers with data and technology to give the best possible market advantage on every vehicle at your dealership. Moto Hunt Premium offers a suite of features such as real-time market analysis, inventory management, and up-to-date pricing guides like JD Power and NPA. Dealers love to leverage the platform to identify potential inventory risks and potential issues with your online listings. And it also helps to execute make and model strategies, enabling dealers to help move inventory faster and make more profit. To start leveraging our technology at your dealership, go to motohuntpremium.com. That's motohuntpremium.com to learn more and request a free inventory audit for your dealership today. Got it. Now, uh, one of the other things that's happening right now that uh, is really cool that you and I had a prior conversation about is using some of your own dealer data. You called it first party data to help in some of the targeting objectives. Can you tell, yeah. tell us a little bit more about how that works and why it's important now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, first of all, you've got to be very careful with managing your data. We always encourage our customers to upload it themselves directly so they don't violate any kind of uh, customer privacy rules or anything important to throw that caveat out there. But Google can, uh, basically what's really cool about, uh, I think Facebook did this first, yeah. is they allowed you to match to customers with a certain number of traits that were similar to your customers. So for instance, um, on Facebook, if I have a list of a thousand customers, who bought motorcycles or, or purchased some service from me, and I tar Facebook can find you more of those people very easily. So you have two options with first-party data. One is market to them specifically, or use them to market to other people. Probably the more useful way to use it is to find new customers. So um, typically, the the data requirement is name, address, phone number. Um, ideally like product that they might have bought or whatever, sort them by customer value, sort them by, you know, for instance, new customers versus used, and then upload them and tell Google to find people uh, with similar characteristics. So that it can be a really good way to, let's say enhance a search campaign where you have, where you're targeting people that are, are just looking for motorcycles. But if someone is in, uh, that bucket of similar users or similar audience, you can bid up on them and say, hey, not only is this person searching for this product, but they also have a lot of similar traits to people that have been buying from me for a long time. So we really want to prioritize this person. That's an example of how you could use it with search. With YouTube, it's even cooler because you can say, hey, uh, maybe they didn't search, but they're similar to this audience, so serve them these ads. So that could be more of a top of funnel way to drive people towards uh, purchase that haven't even indicated that they're in market yet, because Google knows they're about to be in market or there are other signals that have indicated that they're similar to people who have bought from you. And I, I it, it was, obviously Facebook did it the best and they've a lot of things have changed with their platform. Google kind of saw what was coming and they've pivoted their capabilities significantly. So um, I guess users are a little bit more uh, anonymized, so to speak. So it's 
basically, first party data used to work a lot better than it does now. Uh, used to be able to make an audience list of like 10 people and just serve those 10 people ads. Uh, the minimum size list, I think, is about 500 now. So you need to have at least 500 customers. But essentially, what you want to do is use uh, sold customer data to enrich your targeting, to enrich your bid strategy, to um, re-engage people. For instance, if people have bought motorcycles uh, from you and they haven't serviced them with you, they should. So you can target you, everyone that you've sold product to with just service ads, whether they're looking for it or not. So that would be another great way of leveraging that. Another great option for leveraging it within the power sports industry would be gear. Everyone needs new helmets, gloves, you know, protective gear all the time. And the biggest trove of data that you're gonna have is like, who just bought a motorcycle from me? They definitely need a new helmet. So that's another way that you can leverage uh, first party data for you know, new customer sales, uh, expanding your, your target list, and then selling ancillary services. Definitely something that dealers should be doing. And let's not forget in this cookie list world, uh, you know, with browser cookies and tracking cookies that are going away if, if they're not all the way gone now, first yeah. party data becomes even more valuable to that dealer, whether they're doing their own advertising or whether they're, they're using an agency to do the advertising with them. That dealer is sitting on a mountain of data in their DMS, in their CRM, yeah. in their service repair orders, in their parts transaction tickets. I mean, it's just incredible how much data we have in, a, in a, any given dealership and we don't even realize it. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of dealerships don't necessarily understand how much money their data is worth. It's worth a lot. Um, so it's really important that they store it safely, that they leverage it, that they share it safely with their agencies, and ultimately that they own their data. And that, you know, for instance, if they ever depart ways with a vendor, that they retain their ad account, that they retain their data because it can be leveraged in other places. So you just it's super valuable. And I don't think a lot of dealerships uh, or, or dealer operators understand how valuable their sold data is. And let's not, let's not forget the, the last part of that is they're always trying to get more data, right? In a, in a better, exactly. cleaner fashion. Okay, cool. Exactly. So, so Google ads, you know, they're, they're, everybody kind of knows about them. They know they probably should have them, but let's just be specific on how Google ads as a priority in your advertising diversification, how well they actually help, right? So you've got this website, you've got your inventory on there. You're spending a lot of time to build this wonderful virtual showroom online and you need customers to come and visit you. So let's talk about how Google can help with that, with the ads that you put out there, right? Google ads can help increase visibility. Yep. Uh, clearly you just explained with first party data, we can use our own customer base to help us get more customers just by a lookalike type algorithm, right? Uh, we yep. certainly target locally, even though we would love to sell to anybody nationally, 99% of our customer base is going to be somewhat with an hour drive of our local dealership. Right. Um, and then knowing our audience, right. Tell us a little bit more about how we can leverage some of the copy to write more specific, uh, to be more careful, to be more engaging with the types of ads that you write once an ad is placed. For sure. I mean, obviously this is gonna all be in the context of the products you have to sell. So every dealership is gonna have a different 
line of product, but um, the recipe for creating a search campaign is you need keywords, you need to target it by hour of day, day of the week, geographic location that makes sense for you. Like you said, everyone wants to sell a motorcycle anywhere in the country, but most likely their buyers are going to come within a 50 mile radius uh, um, of them. And then of course the ad, that's the most important part. It's what engages the person to ultimately go to the website to check out your SRPs and VDPs for the specific vehicles that you have um, on the website. So obviously um, if you have, let's say, again, I'm just gonna go back to the Harley example. If you have 15 Harley 48s, you should have your own campaign for that. Driving uh, traffic for people that are looking for that specific keyword. And you need to make sure that that ad is very relevant for the search. If they're say, if they're looking for something, Harley Davidson 48 price, Harley Davidson 48 Austin, say, I always like to have the keyword that I'm bidding on in the copy, because if someone sees exactly what they looked for, even if it looks a little wonky, it, it's going to make the customer engage because there's a high relevance between the question I just asked Google and this ad that is there. And what's the, the other part that's very important is that when you're thinking about your website in this virtual showroom that everyone invests a lot of time and money into, that you have really useful content on your landing pages that is relevant ideally to the ad. So for instance, on that landing page for Harley Davidson 48s, you're going to have, uh, you're gonna have copy that is specific to how many you have, the types of colors, your price ranges, all that stuff. If, some, if someone is asking for pricing, in the keyword search, I want to include it in the ad because if that price is within, uh, I, I like it for two reasons. If the price is too high, the person's not going to click. And I don't want that person's traffic if they can't afford the motorcycle that I'm trying to sell. But if it's right on the money for them, then they, they have a very high likelihood of converting. And you're also meeting them at the question that they're asking. So do you write just one ad copy for the different models, as you say, like the Harley 48s or the Softail Lowriders? Do you write one ad for those or are you writing multiple? At a bare minimum, you want to have two. For a long time, we did three and we're kind of seeing ads on Google have changed a little bit. They, we used to have something called the extended text ad. And during that era, we would have three iterations for every uh, line of inventory we had. So again, back to the Harley 48 example, we'd probably have four or five ad groups for just that uh, unit. And in each one of those, let's say one ad group is Harley Davidson 48 or Harley 48, then you have kind of a more generic one. If it says Harley Davidson 48 price, then we're going to have ads that are relevant that they're going to all be very similar, but they will be tweaked to the keyword exactly. And you never want to just have one ad because you always want to be doing A-B testing. And essentially good ad optimization is a little bit of a leapfrog effort where let's say you have two or three ads. One is going to perform better than the others. Make a copy of the one that's performing the best, write it a little better, test a theme out, add pricing, take pricing out throw in some other CTA, be funny, whatever you want to do to vary from that ad that performed the best and then see what performed best next month. But the, a good rule of thumb is to optimize your top performing ads from an impression and click standpoint at least once a month. And you're basically always kind of iterating on what worked the best. 
and incrementally improving your quality score, your engagement, and ultimately your leads. Well, I certainly know you guys are in there in a certain client's account daily, always testing, always tweaking. For Absolutely. the uh, for the folks at home listening, let, let's kind of break down what a campaign structure would look like, right? So I I, I know your methodology pretty well, and uh, it's it's fantastic, the best I've seen. But for everybody listening, the campaign structure of a Google account being set up. So so just kind of run with me here, Mike. At the very top, you have an account, right? So this would be your store's account, or maybe you run at a corporate level, like I did multiple accounts per rooftop, right? So yeah. you've got the account level at the very top, and then you get into the campaign. And the way that you do your campaigns is say a multi-line store or metric store, you would have a campaign for each brand. So you got That's a correct. campaign for Honda, campaign for Yamaha, campaign for Polaris, campaign for Can-Am. And within those campaigns, you would run ad groups for the models or the segments. Help me out with that one. Yeah, um, you're hired. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> how it is. So the the important thing to note is that campaigns is where you control budget, okay? If I want to say that for this subset of keywords, and it could be all of your keywords in one campaign, or better yet, like what you said, se segmented by brand. Motorcycle, side-by-side, um, -side, ATV. Exactly. Okay. What you don't want to do is you don't want to jumble everything together. Because you won't be able to say, once it's in a campaign, I can't say, okay, Google, uh, we have these, we have uh, Can-Am, Polaris, and you know KTM all in one campaign. I can't say spend 200 here, 300 here, and 100 over there. You can only control the budget at the campaign level. So that's why you want to do it per brand. And sometimes every, every dealership will have kind of a model that they carry more of than anything else you are going to want to have a campaign for that too. So you can force as much money through that individual campaign. A really great example is actually an audit I was doing virtually today, a Chrysler dealership in the Pennsylvania area. And the, the dealership was asking me, it's like, hey, I, I'm getting a lot of traffic. You're spending about 18 grand a month and um, getting you know 6,000 visits, $3 CPC. Okay, great. A lot of traffic. But why am I not selling any of my Ram 1500s? And I looked at it and he had a Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram or CJDR new campaign. And in that new campaign was Dodge Dart, Dodge Charger, Ram 1500, every other type of Ram that was there. It also had Jeep Wrangler in there. So it was totally diluted. Uh, for this guy, he needs to break it out by brand. And for in an instance where he has a significant, in this case, had a significant surplus of this one uh, 1500, you need your own 1500 campaign. Why? Because there, you know, for instance, Jeep Wranglers, they have a tremendous amount of search volume, but I don't want to dilute the campaign for, for, for Ram 1500 by going after the people that are looking for a Jeep Wrangler. That's a different buyer. It's a different person. But if the budget is all controlled, through this one campaign and I have too many different themes in there, I won't be able to be precise. And ultimately the whole point of paid search is to be precise. It's to say, what do I have to sell? What do I have the most to sell? Okay, I'm gonna allocate my resources accordingly and I can change this up as much as I need to based on inventory um, ebbs and flows. But the biggest mistake that I see when I do audits 
is people that just people don't segment their campaigns. They'll have a general used campaign. They'll have a general new campaign. I'm like, new what? Uh, I, down here in Texas, we drive a lot of trucks, SUVs, not as many small cars on the road. So sometimes it makes sense to even break things up by trim line. Mm -hmm. um, a great example, street versus sport versus cruiser. You know, um, so, and, and again, you, the decision needs to be made at where do we have the highest concentration of inventory and how can we prioritize that in our campaign structure? Okay. So let me, let me kind of reiterate that in power sports terms, right? So uh, down here in the Southwest, right? We're, we're very big in off-road razors uh, and Mavericks, you know, Canem Mavericks and Polaris razors, they kind of sell themselves, right? Uh, we still want to show up for those types of uh, keywords and, and low funnel intent users uh, to click on a website and buy from, from these dealerships, but they kind of sell themselves in a way. So we don't have to prioritize a whole lot of ad budget to those campaigns, unless we just really have some sales goals to hit. But in your case, you know, the Jeep Wrangler was the Polaris Razor, right? They just kind of sell themselves. They get a lot of attention anyways. You're going to get clicks off of them organically or paid, but this guy needed to move Ram 1500s. I kind of equate that to poor Suzuki, right? I love yeah. Suzuki, have been a fan of Suzuki. I've owned Suzuki's, but right now, the last couple of years, their product is not all that invigorating, right? But yeah. we still have product that we need to get through, motorcycles, ATVs. And so what you're saying that uh, a given dealer can do with direction and knowing about that business and what product he needs to prioritize, he can push a little bit more budget to the Suzuki line. Or let's say I'm sitting on 25 Suzuki ATVs. I need to I need to move these ATVs or it's going to kill me. You can push a lot more effort into those uh, without really touching the budget on everything else. Is that what you're saying? Correct. And just being very specific, let's say you had a a general new inventory campaign, which by the way, is what everybody does. Yep. They just do all the new stuff goes in one Suzuki by Can-Am and, and everything else. You will not sell more Suzuki's because the budget will be allocated by search volume. So uh, what would be the more popular uh, model that we would compare the Suzuki to the Polaris? So yeah. if you have Polaris and Suzuki in the same campaign, you're like, hey, this is this is $100 per day. And there are 10,000 people in that time frame looking for Pol uh, Polaris and you know 1,000 looking for Suzuki. Guess what Google's going to do? No one cares about Suzuki. We're going to spend yep. all of this resource here because Google is looking for volume and distribution. So the only way to basically force the system to say, hey, I do want a lot of Polaris and I also need this Suzuki because that's what I have to sell is to separate those into different campaigns and give them their own budgets, make sure that the target area is correct. But um, the worst thing you can do is have just kind of a general new or general used inventory. It's, you know, you're, the, the traffic that you get, well, it's just whatever's available and that's not targeted. Um, with, with Google ads, you really just need to be emphasizing what you have in stock versus what people are looking for, if that right. makes sense. Right. That's great. Let's talk about, let's switch gears uh, and talk about conversion tracking. So up until this point, we've talked about um, whether you're an agency or you're uh, you know, at the dealership trying to create your own 
uh, level of detail within your own Google campaign. Um, conversion tracking is kind of one of these things that is left on the back burner, right? Because a lot of effort goes into the website where you're going to drive all these clicks, the keywords, the campaign structure, the ad groups, writing the copy. And we'll get to negative keywords here in a second. It's on my list, but conversion tracking, why is that so important? And let's go with a couple definition of what conversion tracking is. Sure. So for me, so here's the problem with, with just kind of Google, frankly, you can call anything a conversion. I can call a VDP a conversion and a lot of our competitors do. I can call a visit to a contact page a conversion. But what a conversion is for me is information capture that is actionable for a sales team, i.e. chats being probably the lowest priority, phone calls being the highest, form leads, finance applications, things that are actionable for your sales team to go follow up on. So the problem with conversion tracking is it's it kind of sits in no man's land. Website providers will will do like a decent enough job with it and then they they'll set it up once and then they'll forget about it. No matter how much their websites change because it's kind of in this no man's land, it gets done at onboarding but it isn't managed. And the problem with that is if you add new pages, if you add new conversion events, change conversion events, change how a phone number is displayed in a VDP when it wasn't before, then if you're not watching it, you're not going to be tracking those key metrics that matter the most to you. And the reason why it's so important, um, Google Ads will inform its optimizations based on the inputs it's given. So you have to have very good conversion tracking to tell Google Ads, hey, this was a form, a form fill. This was a phone call. This keyword generated X amount of form fills over this time. This keyword is really important. Maybe we should bid more for it because there's a lot of search volume available. Um, conversion tracking is probably the most important thing, um, honestly, you, because if you don't have it set up, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is. Your campaigns will just go nowhere. You can spend all that money, but we don't care necessarily about traffic in performance marketing as much as we do about leads and the outcomes that we want to drive through traffic acquisition. So good conversion tracking will allow you to buy the right type of traffic. And uh, yeah, so it, it's important that you keep an eye on it once a quarter, at least uh, there's been a pretty big change in the land, whole tracking landscape, UA or Urchin Analytics, which is what Google bought a long, long time ago has basically not changed and like much in its in how it captures data in I think like 15 years or so, just a crazy amount of time. So we have analytics G4, which is a little bit more robust. The user interface is foreign to everyone. So that's why people don't like it as much, but you can do really cool things. Like it in, uh, for instance, I can set up events based on a few different uh, actions. So let's say you, Jacob, come to my website, you stay on for a minute, and 45 seconds, which is our traffic benchmark. Okay, you you achieved just your time on site achieved one of those things. And you looked at three VDPs. I can create an engaged user event for that person. And I can take that and remarket to people that fall into that bucket. Whereas before it's, did they see this page? Did they use this site search? It was a lot, it, you, you can do a lot more sophisticated things now with your conversion tracking than you could before. I think we definitely need to have you on for just a SEO or, or organic and a GA4 conversation because that's 
that's hitting everybody by the broadside. And I think we've only got a few more days until uh, UA or GA3 is sunset. But yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going with done. the conversion here. So a, a good a good practice that uh, an operator or a marketing director, marketing manager, whoever's in charge of, you know, defining what a conversion is. Uh, first thing you need to do you need to do is communicate to your agency, or if you're doing it yourself, you need to understand what a conversion is. And I highly, highly agree with you. Uh, in the early days, uh, before you and I had gotten together and built this this. Google ads empire for the businesses that we were working with, um, you know, conversion tracking was just kind of a, well, it's, it's, it's important, but it's not. And whenever that certain agency or that vendor would deliver a report, they would always talk about the clicks and impressions. Hey, you've got a million impressions for this, you know, 3,500 bucks that you spent this month. And we drove, you know, 1500 clicks. Well, that that's great. Thanks. But how many leads did I get? Oh, well, uh, you know, we, we're not sure on that. Right. Yeah. Or, well, how many, how many phone calls did I get? Uh, well, we don't track that. Well, what do you mean? Uh, so, you know, exactly. number one, number one thing you need to do as an operator is make that definition clear with your vendor and make sure that that's what they're reporting to you. Cause that's a tangible thing that you can point to on your reporting and say, I've got 20 leads from this vendor out of this spend. There's your ROI. And you can track that all the way through sale, right? Exactly. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you, you literally have no information that's actionable for the sales team. And the real tricky part about this type of marketing, which is local e-commerce, is the transaction will not happen online. There's a lot of great companies we work with where all the transaction value is captured online and can get passed from Google Analytics to Google Ads. That's the easiest thing. That is so easy. But what's hard is, hey, this person made a phone call two weeks ago and then they walked in, stitching yeah. that together. If you're not tracking the phone calls, you're just going to think your business is thriving on fresh ups or something. We see that all the time. When I look at a CRM report, where did all of our sales come from? Okay, 10 came from PPC, five came from website general or direct or whatever. And like 85% of them are just walk-ins. People just seem to love walking into our motorcycle dealership <laughs> just on their way home. Like it makes no sense. That's not how people work. So essentially conversion tracking, uh, another way to think about it is, the milestone of that sales journey. It's an important milestone. It's the most important milestone to you as a dealer, right? Because you need to make sure that, uh, you know, if people are searching, great milestone. They, they've checked that off on the intent side. They've gone to your website. That's another great milestone. And that's where your tracking of that person will begin. But ultimately, a, a dealership owner or GM is only going to care about those users who actually said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in your product. And if you don't have your conversions tracked correctly, you can't tell that story. And if you can't tell that sto story, then you literally have no idea what you're getting for your spend. That's great. That's great. We, we, definitely something that needs uh, you know, more emphasis with a lot of these operators rather than just signing a contract. Hey, he's my vendor. Uh, you know, They basically let them run with whatever they need to do. So this is just more or less being involved in having these conversations with your vendor to say, this is my definition of a conversion. This is what I want to spend money on inventory wise. These are some goals or promotions that we have going on this month or next. And it's really just having that open line of communication. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you see under doing something stupid like tracking uh, visits to a contact us page or VDP view as a conversion, they're cheating. They're literally setting the goalposts uh, or, or setting the bar way too low for themselves. A VDP view is not a lead. If it's not actionable for your sales team, it is not a conversion. So it's really important that you only track things that are true information capture as conversions and don't muddy the waters with like VDPs and all this other stuff because Google won't know what, what to prioritize. So it's going to go for distribution. So you're gonna get a lot more VDP views than form leads. So if you have them both tracked as conversions, you're not gonna get a lot of form leads because Google's gonna be optimizing to VDPs, if that makes totally. sense. Totally, totally. Earlier, you brought up the term negative keywords. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about what that is, why we need to optimize our negative keywords and just, you know, what are they? Sure. I mean, so a keyword is the, is what you want to show up for. A negative keyword is I don't want to show up for this for some reason. The, the, and, and the main reason why you want negative keywords is to, um, make sure you're not wasting your money on things that are not relevant to your business, but seem similar. A great example, back in the day, I remember there was a, a couple of big events that happened within a couple of years. Uh, Tom Ford came out, uh, the, the song Tom Ford by Jay-Z came out. And for all of my campaigns that were just bidding on Ford, we we're just getting a bunch of crap traffic for people that were Googling to get to a YouTube video. Uh, so they could hear Jay-Z. Another one would be Rob Ford, the late great mayor of Toronto, who uh, was famous, uh, went viral for smoking crack or something crazy like that. And that was another, uh, like I literally was uh, getting traffic and I could see in my search terms report, people typing in Rob Ford and Google's like, hey, Ford, that's good. So what, what a negative keyword does is it really helps steer your intent. So for instance, if um, we're selling uh, motorcycles for adults, we want to exclude kids, amateur. Uh, if we are selling things for men, like gear, we want to make sure that we have ladies, women's uh, excluded from that campaign and then have a separate one for women's where men's is excluded. What you're really trying to do is say like, this is the product I have to sell and it's not this other one. I think the best example I can actually give you, it, it comes from, uh, multifamily housing, um, to, to three really good examples. Every apartment community, regardless of whether they're luxury or not, thinks of themselves as luxury. However, not a lot of them are. Some of them are student housing. And apartment communities that are not student housing do not want to show up for that. Apartments that offer voucher housing for people who are, you know, financially, uh, you know, have a uh, like section eight or voucher housing or something like that, they don't they don't want to acquire that type of traffic because they're looking to lease, say, a three thousand dollar a month uh, unit in Miami. What they don't want to show up for is section eight. They don't want to show up for student housing because that is also a discounted uh, category. So in auto, a great example again, Honda Civic needs to be a negative for anything power sports related, or you will have a lot of people that will type out things that are very similar to your products, or, or Google might think they are, but they're not. So it's really just a matter of steering your uh, spend as much as you can to the intent 
of your product and thinking about what are things that people could, uh, you know, say something similar, but it would be a complete miss. So Honda Power Sports, Honda Cars is probably the most appropriate example I have for the automotive industry. Right. Or, or another one might be, you know, you're we're obviously on a dealership fix it podcast, right? So we're in the retail business. So if you're selling razors, but you don't want to show up for rental razors, right? You want to negative out your rentals, optimize your for sales, and then you won't show up for, you know, those types of keywords. Now you can see this in your Google ads account. And this is something that you typically go over pretty frequently where you may show up or you may uh, serve an ad for one of these keywords that maybe you even didn't think about, but it's, it's a good practice to be consistent in checking those keyword lists and saying, oops, I didn't want to show up for this one, tag it and mark it as a negative keyword. And then it goes in that overall list, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so there's keywords, which is, this is what I want to show up for. Harley, I want to show up for Harley Davidson 48 Austin, but Google will match that keyword to a whole bunch of other things that are similar. It could be a variation of that keyword, Austin, Harley 48 dealer or something like that, or, or it could match to 48 plus Harley riders, you know, or something like that. So you just like want to make sure that the products that you're, you're marketing, that you're looking at your search terms, a keyword is what you want to show up for. A search term is what you showed up for and you find out after the fact. So on a monthly basis, at minimum, you need to look through something called the search terms report and flag all of the stuff in there that is uh, crap. The, the best examples um, I think of like diluting a new inventory campaign, now that I think of it, is actually parts. There are so mm. many, uh, like the R9T, there are so many aftermarket kits, handlebars, brakes, the BMW all of that. R9T. Oh, yes, exactly. So with uh, any kind of BM, BMW marketing campaign, you need to think of all the parts that are hyper relevant to someone that already bought that bike and you need to exclude all of them because we're just trying to sell the bike. We're not trying to sell the parts yet. So that would be a really good example of like something that's kind of good, right? Like they're looking for parts or they're looking for a motorcycle. We sell both, so we want the customer. But the problem is there's a major uh, difference in the transaction value of a full motorcycle versus selling uh, you know, a brake line or something like that. So I would actually say, again, power sports is probably one of the most complicated um, way it's just it's so complicated because there's so many variations and there's so many different intent vectors most people that again going back to the honda civic example there's going to be far fewer people that are looking to do aftermarket modifications of a civic than people that are going to do that to a honda uh motorcycle it's just a fact so it's something that you really have to understand really well and you've got to work with your parts team get the list of all the parts and just upload them as a negative list uh, to make life easy for yourself. Um, but uh, no matter what you do, Google, again, it, Google will, it's easy to waste money with Google. That's the thing. I love it. It's really precise, but Google is, you know, if, if they think someone means something that's similar yeah. to your product, they'll, they're going to go for it because Google is trying to make money off of clicks and they make money off of good clicks and bad. So it's really important that you inform it with really precise targeting negative uh, targeting location exclusion lists, negative keyword lists, making sure that you're refining your targeting and hours of operation. The biggest one I see screwed up all the time 
is people will have a 24 hour ad schedule. And the funny, the argument in favor of it is, well, you wanna be omnipresent, right? Like who, if, if someone's looking for a Polaris Razor at 4 a.m. in the morning, uh, who cares, right? They, they're probably gonna follow up with me the next day or whatever. Maybe not, you know, uh, most of the time we find that they don't. And what we find is that the, the times of concentration for lead generation tends to be during the day. So you wanna make sure that you're maximizing your budget around the times where you can serve those customers. And what we find when we do our audits is it's typically like 20 to 30% of the overall budget is spent during uh, the hours of zero, zero or midnight in Google ads to four or five. And what's really, uh, it gets, it earns me a lot of business is I'll just take that and go all time. Let's say how much, how many clicks and how much money have we spent over the last five years from midnight to four or five in the morning. And it, it ends up being a fortune, like many wow. months of full budget, just blown uh, and very little conversion activity to show for it. And ultimately we're not just trying to get any conversions. We're trying to do it within an acceptable threshold. I would say on the high end, you want a, a cost per lead of 70 bucks, ideally much lower than that below 30. You're not gonna get that if you're spending that money during the night. And the problem is if you keep doing the 24 hour ad schedule and you're serving, you're just basically diluting your day budget. So if you could take that 20% and add it to your ad schedule during the day, you would have a lot more traffic and a lot more leads. Um, so that that is a huge area of opportunity that we see literally 95% of the time. Speaking of ad schedules, so you're, you're turning off the schedule from running between midnight and 4 a.m. So it's only running every other time after that. What about days of week? What if we're at a shop that is only open from Tuesday through Saturday? Are you also recommending to turn them off on Sunday and Monday when the shop is closed? Not necessarily, but there's going to be certain things that I do turn off. I'm going to turn off the phone extensions during mm -hmm. any time. Like our standard default, uh, like this is the default Power Sports um, ad schedule seven to 11 and from let's from hours of operation let's call it nine to six that's when we have the phone calls and the phone numbers and phone extensions running and we're okay with getting a little bit of traffic before and after that but um we're not pushing phone calls during that time the, there is another way of addressing the the midnight ad schedule kind of thing you can also bid down bid up and bid down on hours that uh, perform better for you. For instance, 11 to 2.30 in the afternoon is probably the best converting time window for the vast majority of dealerships. Monday, for whatever reason, gets a lot of uh, lead volume pretty much everywhere, and Saturday or Sunday sucks. So you can drive traffic on Sunday, but what I'll do is I'll say, hey, you know what, Sunday, I get a lot of traffic. I'm gonna bid down on Sunday, and I'm gonna bid up on Monday. So explain my that. CPC. Explain so, bidding up or down. What does that mean? So let's say for a, an account or for a keyword list on Sunday, you know, if, if I didn't do any kind of uh, time-based bid adjustments, let's say the CPC is $2.50, okay. you know, for me to be in like positions one through three. What I'll do is I'll say, hey, I want to show up more prominently during the times when people are going to call me because just... The, the difference between being in positions one to, to you know, four or whatever, 
are huge in terms of conversion value. You want to be closer to one. So what I'll do is I'll say, okay, Sunday, I want to get traffic. I understand that this is not going to be, I'm not going to change user behavior that much with my search ads. So I'm going to spend less per click on this day. And I'm going to conserve maybe 20% of that budget, which I will then increase into Monday. Um, and what you'll see with some of our ad schedules uh, that after they have enough data and you really, it takes a while to figure out kind of when the, uh, what, what hours and time windows are the best for you. But after about three to four months, you will know that quite well. And you wanna make sure that you know when historically you've gotten the most phone calls. And you wanna make sure that you are juicing those times as much as possible. And anything around that, you just kind of, you, you wanna be there, but you can invest less because you're looking to, um, basically concentrate your budget around those conversion windows as much as you can. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's being very surgical with the limited amount of ad spend. I mean, let's just think about it. You know, most of these dealers are on average anywhere from 1500 bucks a month to let's say upwards to five grand. That's probably on the high end for a lot of these dealers. And that's yeah. not including the management fee that if you're paying an agency or you're paying a person, to do all this work, right? So let's say 15 I would say that's the, that's the best argument against the omnipresent schedule. It's we don't have the budget to be omnipresent. So we don't have the budget, yeah. Conserve it for when you, you're going to get conversions. And 100%, that's it. Yeah. 100%. So good ad, good ad management is like 80% waste elimination. That's like 20% of it is like set up strategy, good creative. And then you're just looking at all the ways you can kind of childproof this account so it doesn't accidentally blow through a bunch of budget or spend money in Lithuania or Papua New Guinea. It was a new one that came online. Uh, Papua New Guinea, I guess, was not on Google. There's a bunch of countries that are not on Google now. Iran, Cuba, Sudan are, are some examples. Now Russia, Korea. I guess. Papua New Guinea, all of a sudden, uh, it joined the, the ad ecosystem. And all of a sudden, every single account we looked at had traffic from Papua New Guinea zero conversion. So it was all bot driven, yeah. but you know, we, it was just kind of funny to see that it's not often that a new country will come online, so to speak, or become addressable through Google ads. So it's important to exclude any country state region that you don't intend on doing business in Arizona. You want to exclude Mexico. You want to exclude, uh, maybe not Nevada because there, there's a lot of crossover traffic, but you probably want to exclude Alabama definitely want to exclude New York, California, places that are just too far away. Right. Right. In your local ad campaigns. Correct. Now, if you've got all the money in the world and you're going with a national campaign, obviously these things don't apply. You're being a little bit more, more broad geographically. So yeah, that's an interesting point, Mike. You know, you're, you're mitigating the waste here. You're turning off keywords, you're turning off locations, you're turning off ad schedules to make them really optimize towards the things that are on during business hours to help optimize the best chances that you'll get an impression, a click and a conversion. So that's, that's exactly. definitely a lot of work, right? I, I know firsthand the amount of work that you guys put into any given ad account and their campaign structure, whether it be a single line dealer or a multi-line dealer, but uh, let's talk about the new Performance Max, or it, it's called PMAX for short, right? Uh, Google, in their ever, <laughs> ever, never-ending quest to 
profitize to monetize their platforms. They're trying to what this is what it seems like to me. They're trying to make it easier for the average person to run their own ads as a business owner or as a dealership. Pmax has been around for what about a year now, right? Yeah, roughly a year. What you know? I already know your answer, but let's tell everybody what your uh, synopsis is in regards to Pmax and really maybe you why you want to stay away from it or why you would want to move towards it. Yeah, I mean. I think it definitely makes uh, it easier to launch for your average layman or plumber or baker or whatever. The problem is differentiating um, between a luxury or non-luxury customer is almost impossible. You're going to get a ton of just traffic that's not qualified. The argument in favor of Pmax is that the CPCs tend to be really low, which is great, but um, the, the, the cost per leads, you know, for per quality lead, I think are higher than just search because you have less levers of control. I think this has been fixed now, but the only way to get keep negative keyword lists into uh, an account is to, uh, was to do it via, via ticket. You couldn't just go into the user interface and add that. Same thing with ad schedule. It's like they made it deliberately harder to control. It's more black box. And obviously being an agency owner and someone who's a total control freak, that really bothers me because especially for power sports dealers, guess what? A lot of power sports dealers have very similar sounding names, or mm. if it's, you know, uh, Indian motorcycles of Austin or dream Indian motorcycles, right? You're going to have your PMAX campaign and you're going to be driving a lot of brand traffic for a dealership that's not yours, and you won't find out about it for a while. So I do believe that it is where the product is going. However, um, my my biggest issue with Google is that they they give you you little levers of control when they have to, and they take them away the rest of the time in uh, with an argument of making the platform better for everyone. Mm. But what's really comical comical for me is most of their money comes from the travel industry. It comes from auto. It comes from housing. Those are not plumbers and bakers. Why would they diminish the targeting and exclusion capabilities for all of their biggest spenders um, in favor of new users? They already have a product called Ads Express for those people. So my take on it is that Google has a tremendous amount of crappy traffic in inventory, if you will. They've got search partners and they have been trying to force people to use that inventory for a long time. And now with these more black box strategies and the inability to exclude as much as you have been historically able to do, um, it's making it easier for Google to monetize their shitty traffic. There's not really any other way of saying it. It's easy for them to monetize bot traffic. They make the same amount of money off of a user, whether it's a real person or not. And I think the more barriers you put in front of business owners to really segment control and dial into their, their, their target audience, I find that to be really dishonest. And I don't think it's a good direction for Google to be going in, but it does kind of seem to be the way that it is going. I mean, shopping is really 
only it's almost only available via Pmax now. So for anyone that's selling anything through Google Merchant Center, you have to be using Pmax. Local campaigns are only uh, addressable through a Pmax campaign. So you, you know, and it could change. It could be call only becomes Pmax. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the the industry adapts. Google has always thrown these different things at us. They've changed their mind a bunch of times. Like I remember around the time enhanced CPC came out and and call tracking was also the time when you could you could target by device. Like I could have a tablet. I would always have a tablet campaign where I would spend like a one cent CPC. Then I would have desktop where it would be like three bucks and mobile would be like 30 cents. And I knew that the vast majority of my leads came from mobile and from desktop. So I would skew the budget that way, but tablet would be a great source of traffic. When they rolled out Enhanced, they completely changed their talk track. They were always talking about uh, having media that was ad you really addressed to the user, but also the device. The next day they're like, yeah, fuck that. We don't care about devices or where the people are, whatever. It's just, this is way better. And then I was, I was forced to buy the crappy tablet traffic at the same CPC as desktop. So what they did there is they saw, okay, desktop is not really growing as a traffic source. Mobile is, we can't really associate a lot of lead quality to mobile because obviously the, the websites were not mobile optimized when this change was made and there was no ability to track phone calls when this first rolled out. So it just became a lot harder to exclude devices. And to this day, I will say exclude tablet. It's just, you're not gonna get leads from it. It, you know, most dealership websites are not optimized well for tablet. It's mobile phones and desktops. Um, but again, with some of these more black box approaches and this evolution, we're losing a lot of those abilities. Um, exclusions of locations is one that I could very easily foresee going where you can no longer exclude other countries. Um, for a lot of industries, you can no longer target by zip code. Uh, and the mm -hmm. reasons for that are just total BS as well. It's like, oh, it's for user protection. So the way we get around it now is one kilometer radiuses. And that's actually way more precise uh, in targeting a zip code because I can cut a zip code into multiple little mini radiuses. But it was just kind of another arbitrary change where it, it seemed like Google, they started selling the 25 mile radius again and kind of more of a broad strategy. And that's not appropriate for most businesses that fall into this category. Especially dealerships. Especially power sports, especially power sports. And let's clarify a little bit about what Pmax is, right? Awesome explanation. You gave your pros and cons on it. It's good for some people, maybe not so great for power sports dealerships, but Pmax in all of its glory is just a packaged up version of all the different ad types or all the different products that Google has to sell primarily, right? So yeah. an average user would create their own account. They would uh, start with more of a, what's your website? Tell us a little bit about your business. And then you start to go into the ad writing screen, which is only one screen. You right. can add 10 different headlines. You can add five different, uh, you know, copies or text box. You can, I think- Image, one video. Image, video, yep. Whereas- and, and, and when you typically you would create those separately, separately, but right? With Pmax, it's like, hey, let's throw it all in one and see what works best. It when you roll out the reporting, it's like search worked the best. <laughs> yeah. Why can't I just do search? So, um, and, but and that's the problem a great point. is, 
when it's in that context of Pmax, you can't control where the budget goes. So a really we see weird shit happen all the time with our local campaigns where we'll ha I will put a report in front of like a, an apartment owner in some rural area and they will have it'll have like two million impressions on it. I'm just like, whoa, how did that happen? And it came through the Pmax local campaign and we'll have to submit a ticket to find out that a lot of those impressions came from out of the country or somewhere else. So it, it's definitely, I can see how it makes things easy for a general business or a business that sells maybe one or two products or one or two services. But when you have a diverse set of products, you, you really need to be a bit of a control freak. So that's where the, that's a limitation with Pmax. And hopefully Google does some things that help us address that need for segmentation and really precise messaging for people at, that are looking for various products. That's great. And I don't think a lot of dealers are, are looking at that or let alone optimizing for that. Okay. Well, as we, uh, as we kind of round about here, Mike, uh, appreciate all the time that you spent with us. Let's kind of get into more of the fun stuff, right? So up until this point, we've been talking all things, Google, uh, mostly in search and a couple of the aspects to do with, uh, you know, how an agency such as yourself would help out a dealer, a little bit of your structure, a little bit of the strategy behind it. Tons of work goes into it. Lots of optimizing all the time. Why don't we kind of shift gears into something else and talk about just digital advertising in general? What to you, Mike, are the coolest things happening in digital advertising right now as they would relate to a power sports dealer? Honestly, I think that um, for auto, I'm a big fan of VLA. That's not necessarily available for power sports yet, but it's coming. Explain, explain what that is. It's it's a video listing ad. So if you search for any car, you're going to see images of with pricing and a link to go to that specific VDP. And typically inventory search doesn't convert very well, um, but through VLAs, it converts really well. So we like VLAs. Well, let's That's super let's, cool. Let's talk about that. So a VLA video yeah. listing ad, or a vehicle listing ad, right? Vehicle listing ad. And so uh, I think I've seen that before where you do a Google search. Uh, and again, we're, we're using auto, even though we're a power sports dealership fix a podcast, but a lot of things in auto happen first and then okay. power sports can get it later on. That's typically how the, the lineage through the last hundred years. I know works. it's already in beta. So we're probably three to six months away from VLAs being less, uh, available for any dealership that wants it. Um, it's, it's again, this is power sports. This is, we need visual media. The more visual we can get, the better. Um, it's also another cool kind of part of the search engine results page to own. Everyone, if you if you think about the, the Google search page, it's usually three ads, a local map pack, organic listings, and then you just keep scrolling until you die now because there's no page two anymore. But vehicle listing ads are, they, it's an image of the of your product before they look at anything else. So everyone's going to definitely see it. I don't know if people are going to see the third listing on the map pack because that's below the fold, but it's right at the top of the fold. It's visual. It gives you all the information you need, the pricing, the location. So it just makes it really easy for users to transact with your product. Um, so that's that's one of the newer things that is coming for Power Sports. I would put the time at you know probably three to six months before that's available for everyone. I know it's already in beta right now. 
Um, the other one is really video. Um, video is so cool and there's so much cool stuff you can do with it. Um, one of my favorite and least utilized features of YouTube advertising is through something called sequences where um, you can show, let's say you have a one minute video, you can cut it into four sequences and show people different sections of the ad through different parts of their journey. So imagine going online to watch like breaking points or something. I like breaking points for, for my news. Uh, and you know, if I were a Harley or a Polaris dealer trying to sell me something here, instead of just forcing me to watch that full 30 second ad or a 15 second ad or whatever, I could do four 15 second ads over the various clips and you can be cheeky with it. Um, a really cool way that it was used actually was a couple of years ago by Oil of Olay. Michelle Geller did kind of a, what was that show she was in for so long? Buffy the Vampire Buffy Slayer. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, It was yeah. Buffy the Vamp. It was the first time they had ever spent any money on a Super Bowl, Super Bowl ad. And Oil of Olay has been around for hundreds of years. I don't use the product. I just heard of that. <laughs> I just <laughs> watched the case study. But they, they had these different sequences and there were four different videos total. And depending on which one you watched, it would determine the next one or it, it was which one you watched and what action you took. So again, bringing that home for a car, uh, for a, a car sports dealer, let's say you have a specific product highlight video, then you have a sale incentive video, then you have a, this is what it's like to do business with right now of Austin or something like that video. You don't have to cram all of that into the same message, which is every car or, or power sports ad, hey, we're really cool. We've got all the stuff. Here's some of the stuff we have, but here's the pricing. And it's just too much. You yeah. can split those concepts out. They're also, e it's also easier to shoot that. So it kind of, it's a very powerful tool for creators. Um, and it's a really great way to kind of uh, nurture that intent uh, for a user that maybe just did a search for a product that you're selling, didn't click, and then they just you just had their attention over the the last couple hours. And obviously, the more clever you can be, the more you can leverage humor, the better. That's great. Okay, so that's called sequences. Yeah, remarketing sequences through uh, YouTube, and it basically you set it up like a flowchart. It's first this this video, then this action. I watch this video and I do nothing, then I see video two. If I do something though, after seeing video one, then I'll see maybe video three. So you can keep, I would say, keep it really simple just to start playing with them. But then what you can do over time to vary up your, your video, and, and this is a huge problem that everyone has because they're like, God damn it, I've got to get Mike uh, a new video every month. Just drop a new sequence and let's shuffle that around. So you'll have, and it works best with evergreen content. So mm. you can have a mostly evergreen sequence that you drop one little uh, time sensitive offer, like a finance offer that expires this month. And then you can take that out of the sequence. So it gives you the ability to kind of mix and match your messaging and to take out the parts that expire very easily instead of having to kill the whole video. I love that. I love that. Well, awesome, man. That, that does sound cool. And I think it's something that we should try and definitely get into along with the VLAs uh, and hope that they come to a Google search uh, page for dealer sport or for power sports dealers uh, soon. So that's awesome, man. 
Well, I think that will do it for our talk here. Any last words of encouragement for our power sports dealers in terms of Google or paid advertising before we go? It's your best source of information for anything you want to do. If you have an account that has some history with it, make sure that you own that account. Make sure it's not something you're renting from your agency. And make sure you start to develop an understanding of, of this generally because it does change a lot. And digital marketing is not something that you can go to college for or take a six-month course for and then you're good. You're, 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 it's, it's like you're jumping into a river and you just need to keep paddling. Uh, and if you stop paddling, if you, if you don't pay attention, you, you jump back into that marketing call six months later and you're going to have no idea what they're talking about. Some new KPI or benchmark or capability will have come out. So the best thing I can advise you to do is to take a look at what is happening within your own account. Think about how you can be more precise with your targeting, with your messaging, and how you can eliminate waste. And if you start to do those things, you're going to become a really good digital marketer and we're always hiring. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, all right, everybody. His name is Mike. He's the owner and founder of Premier Online Marketing. Where can people check you out and find you online, Mike? PremierOnlineMarketing.com. It's our website. Um, if you want to work with us on, say, an audit or something for SEM or paid media or SEO, we can uh, engage with you that way and, and let you know how efficient or not your current strategy is. You're also on uh, LinkedIn. Claire's been doing quite a bit of work on that. Yep. Uh, Michael Shaw on LinkedIn or the company's page. Like us and subscribe us. <laughs> subscribe to us. <laughs> <laughs> Always putting out good content, man. I love it. And certainly your knack for being so specific and detailed. And that's why I wanted to have you on today is just kind of talk about those specifics and let everybody else out there know that there are experts in the field looking to be a good steward of their ad spend and make sure that they're maximizing every last cent that goes into it. So appreciate you coming on, my man. And uh, it's good seeing you. And uh, we'll talk See soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one.